happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located in fabulous Missoula, Montana. And this is episode number 102 of the EdTech Situation Room podcast on August 8th, 2018. And joining me as always, good evening, Dr. West Fryer. How are you? I am well. I apologize for our late start, which we can attribute to uh, having having some challenges uh, with sleep, getting back into the swing of things after a week out. But it was a delicious week in the mountains of Colorado. We fortunately were not around any uh, fires. And yeah, it's good to be back. I am the director of technology at the Cassidy School here in Oklahoma City. And we just had some massive rain last night. And uh, we're glad that, you know, we're not facing a, a bleak and dry um, summer. So are you guys having a, a delightful Missoula summer so far? We are. Um, there, it's a little hazy outside. And we actually think that's from California wildfires um, that uh, tend to that, that make smoke sometimes appear up here. I took a look at the map last night, and there are a couple of small fires in northwestern Montana that are relatively small, under 500 acres. So um, we are supposed to get a high temperature tomorrow of 106. So um, I estimate that's probably not the best for us in regards to the fire season, but so far so good. A year ago at this time, it was extremely thick smoke here um, for almost a month, actually, before finally some rains in September had cooled things off enough and put out fires to where it was not a huge deal. So we're very hopeful um, and and keep uh, uh, our thoughts towards uh, clear um, and hope we can make it through the fire season without, you know, experiencing what folks in California are experiencing right now. Absolutely. Hey, shout out to Peggy George, who is live in our chat room. And sorry about the, the late join there, but glad you can be with us, Peggy. Well, Wes, um, lots of news. Uh, we took a little hiatus last week as you were uh, off-gridding. And as it turns out, the news churns on without us. So we have lots of interesting things to talk about. I do want to um, do a quick update from a story we reported on two weeks ago on the podcast that um, in kind of uh, this week in Mac hand-wringing, there was a, uh, a situation with the newly released MacBooks that the i9 chip, which is the new super fast chip that Intel has released for both laptops and desktops, an i9 chip had been put into a MacBook Pro, but unfortunately there was some proof that that the system was throttling itself due to heat and uh, was much, much slower than its advertised speed. And um, what's interesting about that, and I think the story uh, does refer to this, is that the, the gentleman that had reported on the story was a YouTuber named David Lee, and um, he had faced some criticism uh, for his video. Um, a lot of people uh, responded that, that that was normal and that that was something that he was overblowing, but as it turns out, Apple uh, released a patch for their new MacBook that turned on a key, and I, it's really interesting because it kind of gives you insight on, on how complex hardware is in 2018, but apparently they hadn't released a security key, which turned on the appropriate turbo boost speeds on the, the processor itself, and once they released that firmware update, um, they were able to achieve those speeds without uh, it slowing down due to uh, heat dispensation. And so I wanted to report that as a uh, um, you know, we do spend some time uh, kind of joining in the Mac hand ringing here on the podcast, but it turns out that the super fast chip that's selling for a premium price is indeed super fast. So, Wes, does this mean you will go out and buy the MacBook with Retina with the i9 chip in it? No, I will not. Uh, continuing to enjoy the, what, year or two old MacBook uh, with USB-C only, but uh, I'm really looking forward to October. Of course, the rumors are always flying, but right. um, I'm looking forward to the updates, which are supposed to be substantial. So I'm going to try and stave off the uh, the voices of those that want to have an upgrade at school You know, prior to that, because I always think it's good to wait in October, see what you're going to get. You're either going to get something faster, or maybe you're going to get the same thing. You could get before, but you get it cheaper. So no, I will be holding off on that purchase. Yep. And I, uh, well, and I, I have an older MacBook Air at work that uh, I sometimes dig out. Uh, and it's still a, it's still a pretty solid machine, but obviously not the quality of the recent uh, MacBook Pros with, with Retina displays. But 
Um, one other piece I also want to jump on here that I think is also very interesting that's happened in the last couple of weeks. Uh, we've talked about this in the past in the podcast, but for those of you that do not know this, a flash will die in 2020. Um, that is a, it's, that's not an estimate. It's a fact. Um, uh, Adobe and Facebook and Google um, and Apple and Mozilla and all the major players in web-based properties have, have joined together to to announce, uh, this was uh, two years ago, I think, that Flash will die in 2020. And the reason why I, I mention that is because there's an excellent story in the website Bleeping Computer on July 25th that talked about how um, Senator Ron Wyden from Oregon, who's generally considered to be the most tech-savvy senator in the United States Senate, um, has introduced um, uh, an issue uh, via letters to government agencies saying that they really need to focus on getting all the Flash con content off of their websites by August 1st, uh, 2019. And he cited the 2020 uh, end-of-life date for Flash, saying that if it's, you know, critical in any way at all, we really need to um, uh, get that off of there now. And the reason why this stood out to me is that there's a surprisingly large amount of Flash content, and we're not just talking about, you know, poorly maintained old websites or web-based games, which there are uh, uh, tens of thousands of Flash-based games that um, are pretty unlikely to get updated to an HTML5 technology in light of, of how they were created, we're talking about, you know, legitimate, you know, information sites. And for us at the State Virtual School in Montana, uh, we still do have some legacy content um, that needs to be updated that has Flash in it. And um, we, luckily for us, uh, the, uh, the Mozilla browser, so Firefox, uh, Google Chrome already generally keeps Flash off, and so we get uh, uh, support tickets from students that can't access content, and that finds the little pieces in our system that still maintain Flash so we can rid itself of it. But um, it's something that, it, well, people are calling it a, a kind of a mini um, a Y2K or a mini XP end-of-life situation because those are both things that kind of snuck up um, on us, um, but only through preparation we're able to get through those two situations. But I do think the web changes a little bit in 2020 because of this. And for those of you that maintain websites at all or have digital content or using legacy content, there's a decent chance that this may significantly impact you. Um, so, Wes, are you noticing anything regarding the, the transition that seems to be happening away from Flash and towards HTML5? Not really. It's pretty rare. I mean, we did have some different science interactives that one of our high school science teachers a year or so ago you know, was was using and with Chromebooks and I think it was maybe Shockwave because that is Shock, Shockwave is still different than Flash or is is it? It's not the same thing. Is it? Yeah, it's different. Although that's an older technology that you need to have a plugin that is 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 not been security updated. So yeah, we had some Shockwave stuff as well. Yeah. So I mean, but it's it's fairly rare. So, um, but yeah, I'm glad to see people people highlighting that and uh, you know it's. It is important for people to know, as of today, that uh, Flash is still supported on Chrome. It's it's uh, you know in inside the the browser on a Chromebook or the or the Chrome you know uh, browser that you might have on your Mac or your PC. You just have to decide if you're going to leave it at the default setting, which is to enable it on a case by case basis, or you can actually whitelist websites that just right. approve Flash you know content. So. Anyway, it is uh, it is on the the ropes, but uh, still still out there, and it's not something that is uh, unusable when you have Chrome or Chromebooks. But you know, it's uh, not. I guess it's just yeah, it's one of those development things. It's like baby duck syndrome, right? Is when you get imprinted with something and you right. you love it and use it, and folks that have loved Flash and loved develop developing in Flash, I mean, just really reluctant. And I understand that, man. I mean, if you learn a language, it's like saying you can't use English anymore. You're gonna have to, you know, <clears throat> just talk in Chinese. I mean, it's a big deal to have to completely. I guess switch a development language that you're gonna have. So right, it's a it's a reminder, and I. Uh, you know, I, I, I think we're probably uh, just interacting with more HTML5 content and, and thankfully, you know, beneficiaries of, of folks embracing more open, open web standards, which we're going to hopefully continue to do. Um, we've right. had, you know, some articles we've talked about as far as the uh, fracturization of the web and whether, you know, things are going to be closed off, et cetera, et cetera. But open standards are, are sure important. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pleased that, uh, where we are with web standards and, and 
with regard to Flash and all that. So shout out to the late Steve Jobs, right? Because it was really right. Steve that uh, got out his nails and hammer and you know pounded those in the in the <clears throat> coffin of Flash to really right. put it put it down. Well, and, and he was significantly criticized for that too. There was a lot of folks that that even though I I thought he spoke a lot of logic and truth about uh, the fact that it was killer for mobile because of how terrible um, it was on battery life because of the the, the way Flash is processed on on mobile devices, but you know, like a lot of other decisions Apple has made to move on from something else, they're taking a, a pretty significant kick in the teeth over their decision to get rid of ports other than USB-C uh, on modern-day MacBooks. And I have to say, now that I carry around a USB-C laptop and I have a USB-C phone, I mean, I'll never go back. Like, there's no reason for me at any point to go back because I think that one thing Apple's been really great about is they see the future generally better than most tech companies. In our chat room, Peggy George uh, has asked a great question relating to Flash uh, involving um, announcements that you need to update your Flash player and whether or not those should be ignored or those should be utilized. I mean, generally, we want to we want to run updates and keep our devices secure. But uh, we'll talk tonight about uh, phishing and, and some cybersecurity type issues. And that is a very common type of uh, prompt, you know, need to update Flash, need to update, you know, such and such on your computer, click here. Um, my parents, actually, my dad um, had his laptop completely compromised is a, a very classic recording from my mother on a Sunday. Call as soon as you can. Your dad's computer has been taken over by Russian hackers. And, um, you know, they actually called the phone number. They didn't send any money, got it shut down. I was up there two weeks ago, got it all restored. And we don't know exactly what it was that he clicked on, uh, which compromised uh, his machine. But, yes, you, you want to be very wary of that. And I would just encourage people to generally use the updaters that are inside your computer. Um, if you can buy an app from an app store on the Mac OS app store, uh, just like your smartphone, you know, that is going to be a safer mode in general. There's always going right. to be, you know, things that can trip you up, but that's why we see the influence of the smartphone and the tablet, you know, coming to the desktop operating system because, uh, it's a good model as far as security goes. Um, you know, there certainly continue to be differences between the Android ecosystem and the Apple, uh, ecosystem in terms of how well it's gate kept and, and how much malware, et cetera, uh, or how little malware, you know, ended right. up getting in there. But, uh, be very wary of, of the update messages. And, you know, like I said, as we'll, we'll talk about, we've talked about before on the show, uh, hackers are very sap <coughs> savvy making things look very authentic and legitimate. And you right. should not use that as your litmus test of whether or not we should click on this. Um, really go to the source and either that is your, your updater inside your operating system or, you know, in this case, it would be Adobe who releases Flash and, and has the, uh, the official links to be able to update the software. I have one other piece of tech advice there as well. The other thing I do, um, and I do this with uh, parental computers in my life, is that there's a really great um, in, uh, installer called Ninite, I think is the name of it, N-I-N-I-T-E, and I've been using this for a number of years now. And unfortunately, there's no no real great Mac equivalent. There's, there are Mac equivalents out there, but it's not nearly as elegant or as smooth as Ninite. But it's a great program where you can go to Ninite.com, and it uh, allows you to pick uh, one of probably, probably uh, nearly 100 programs that are common installs on new machines. But the great thing about the software is that you can choose um, uh, uh, various uh, uh, things that are commonly you're, you're being begged to update, and it will update it for you. But you can keep that, that, that file downloaded on your computer and go back to it later. It will go catch the newest version of all that software. So uh, I like this for when I'm providing family tech support because I can just keep this on my parents' desktop and you know either ask them to click on it you know once or twice a month, or if I'm if I'm remoting into those machines, um, I can do that as well. So that's another way that you can help keep that updated. And I. I would also say at some point Wes and I are going to have the grand defensive Chromebook episode, right? But um, the the thing that that uh, you know that's one of the reasons why I really love Chromebooks, um, not just for me as a power user, but for end users, and I think they're kind of the ultimate parent computer. If you can move um, the the older users away from the notion of downloading software and, and think of it as you know, largely a web piece, or if you have a modern one, the Android apps, but you know, there's just no problems with that on, on a Chromebook. And um, I think that's one of the reasons why it's kind of a magical platform. Absolutely. 
Well, I'd love to take us to an article that uh, has to do with some censorship on the part of our major um, social media technology companies, which uh, takes us into some interesting waters, but I'm honestly really glad to see. Um, this was from Ars Technica on August 6th. Uh, it's an op-ed, and it was titled, Alex Jones is a crackpot, but banning, from, banning him from Facebook might be a bad idea. Um, I actually disagree with the thesis here. Uh, part of what the author is saying is that, you know, if you ban something, you draw people's attention to it, maybe you make them more popular. But if you're not familiar with Alex Jones, um, good for you. Uh, he is an incredibly... Uh, just uh, toxic and extreme voice uh, in, in the news. And I remember uh, probably a few years ago, uh, just flipping through, you know, radio channels, scanning through stations and hearing this guy going, what in the heck is this? How is this guy even on the radio? But his website is InfoWars, and that's what they're concerned that, you know, hey, maybe more people are going to come. Come to him, but uh, he's just any conspiracy theory possible that you could jump on. Um, and some of the the ones, uh, the Pizza Gate, which is you know, was that Hillary Clinton and other Democratic uh, uh, legislators in Washington were running a pedophilia uh, ring out of a basement of a pizza joint in D.C., which was totally um, you know found didn't have any foundation at all. Um, the um, the idea that um, what are they called? Not character actors, um, but that, you know, students and, and actors that were hired, uh, were the ones that, you know, were, were at some of the school shootings. Right. Uh, crisis actors is the term they use. Yes. Crisis yep. actors, et cetera. So, you know, um, Mark Zuckerberg, as he's testified before Congress and, you know, faced, faced the, the music as it, as it were, um, you know, has been, has been asked by, by our legislators and, and journalists as well, you know, what about, Banning Infowars. So really interested. Well, so what happened was, um, I think Apple was the first to go ahead and ban maybe five of the six podcasts that they have. Um, and then YouTube followed suit. Uh, his, uh, account is completely taken down now. And then Facebook also banned four of the main pages that he uses to share content. So, um, Facebook, it's in another, I think it was either in this article or another one saying, you know, they, they had two ways of addressing the quote fake news issue rather than an outright ban. They were using their algorithm to de-emphasize in the news feed, um, the importance of, uh, you know, content that was being shared from particular sources. Uh, it certainly is a more confrontational approach for them to outright ban, but they're not doing it on the basis of whether or not something is true or not, because that is, you know, a, a huge issue. Like, how are you going to do that? And it's not illegal or wrong to be wrong, but uh, some of the uh, terms of, of use uh, in its content guidelines, um, which uh, specifically has have to do with, oh gosh, I'll get the quote here. Um, it wasn't fake news. Um, it was, you know, having, having to do with, uh, gosh, silence on the, on the podcast line. Um, yeah. Posting content that's hateful, pornographic, violates privacy. Um, so it's other, other violations of their terms of service, not saying it's, it's fake. So, Jason, what are your responses? Surprised to see these uh, news news and tech companies actually getting into this kind of filtering? I, I am, and and I, I agree. This is, it's a can of worms, right? Like I think the 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 problem here is that um, you know I I don't particularly agree with Mr. Jones's stance on ninety nine point nine percent of things, so I don't personally find much offense to taking him off of the the kind of digital airwaves, but. I think there's, you know, uh, assuming that it doesn't cross lines in regards to racism or um, uh, legal discrimination or, um, uh, you know, other things that are clearly in violation of law that, that our courts have, have clearly defined as, as speech that is not protected speech. I think it becomes hard when you're the world's most popular social network and clearly it's it's such a big deal that, that people are, are considered to be addicted to that network, right? It's engaging in that way. That there's an arbitrary arbitrary, um, maybe arbitrary third party um, inside of that company that's deciding what's legitimate or not. And in fact, 
the other articles that are related to this one is that um, uh, last week Facebook announced they'd taken down um, some apparent uh, 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 websites, or I'm sorry, uh, Facebook pages, websites, Facebook pages, and um, other accounts that were aimed at impact or impacting or influencing the 2018 midterm elections. And like I again, I I don't want Facebook pages to impact elections. I don't want there to be uh, you know devious forces that are are looking to uh, further divide the United States along um, you know kind of rough ideological lines based on what we know from the 2016 election. I just think it's hard to find a clear, bright line there between you know protected speech and. Wes, you're completely right. Being wrong is not a, 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 is is a protected right. Being an idiot is protected. Being um uh, uh 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 being divisive is is protected um under um almost all versions of first First Amendment law. So you know what point at what point does it become dangerous to put those decisions in in the hands of third parties? Great discussion to have uh, in terms of digital citizenship with students, right? Um, because we do have libel laws and they're, you know, you've probably heard, we've probably heard others, you know, talk about my, my right to free speech, you know, you know, ends as far as trying to yell fire in the, in the uh, movie theater right. or, you know, there are, there are limits in terms of <clears throat> how we can exercise our free speech and, and there are consequences um, to our speech. And so, um, that, that it's, it's a fascinating and incredibly relevant conversation to have. And I, I hope that in the next year, I'll be able to find a little bit more time to, uh, work on, on videos and lo and, and this isn't, you know, creating videos at this point. It's really just locating videos that can catalyze discussions about issues like this for students and teachers, you know, being able to show something quick and then having a discussion. So if anybody who is listening, um, has found anything that's really a nice short uh, video that that kind of sets up the 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 issues and the topics here. That would be great. Um, that's a digital citizenship project that I I would love to you know help facilitate and be involved with because I think it's fascinating and it's really relevant. And we don't know yet as a society, you know, speaking of the election issue, how that is going to be transcended. Many of the articles we're reading now, um, and we've got some in the show notes tonight, talk about, you know, compromises of election systems, you know, ways that different states are looking at digital, digital systems and, you know, how deep uh, the Russians, the Chinese, you know, other uh, non-state actors uh, may or may not be right now in, in our systems. Um, and then there's on top of those kinds of potential disruptions, you know, the, the spread of, uh, of disinformation. So we need to be critical thinkers. I think it's a call for education and teaching, Jason. Wouldn't that be a great thing? Yeah, yeah. Well, and how much of this really comes back to that too, right? I mean, I um, I think there's a, a real argument to be made that part of what makes 2018 complicated is that, um, well, this is it's my social studies teacher hat, and I, I think I mentioned this before in the podcast. That's what I taught in the classroom. I'm, a, I'm a, my my undergraduate works in political science and history, and as it turns out, I think the lack of focus on government and civics in the last, uh, well, really since No Child Left Behind passed in, in 2001 has been a um, it's, it's part of the reason why these issues are complicated because um, you know I I, I remember. Um, uh, there was a recent debate in, uh, well, in, in Missoula, Montana, we had a debate over the comment sections of our local newspaper, the Missoulian, and I was of the opinion that we just needed to ban comments um, on on the website, right? There's There are a thousand places where you can go and express your opinion. I was tired of opening up, up the digital newspaper every morning and seeing this terrible set of, of anonymous comments, and I encouraged our local paper to do one of two things, either force someone to identify themselves using using Facebook which, uh, you know, you can still get around, but uh, I find that most people won't or don't. Um, and or second, just get rid of comment sections. And I took a little bit of heat from friends that said that that was against the First Amendment. But, well, au contraire, there is no guarantee that you can have a voice on, on, a, on a newspaper. That's not a First Amendment right. The government can't stop you from doing that. Like the government can't come in and tell the Missoulian to stop them from publishing comments from its readers. But as a private entity, the newspaper can do whatever it likes there. And as a consumer of that newspaper, I felt it was perfectly within my advocacy to say that I don't want to have to read other people's uh, comments on those newspapers. And I think that debate portion uh, becomes more complicated when you don't understand some of the nuances of things like the First Amendment, right? Absolutely. 
And, you know, as it turns out, and having taught government to high school kids, you know, that, that takes a little while, too, to work through those nuances. That's not a that's not a lecture point. That's a discussion point, right, that takes some kind of banging our heads against hard brick walls because it's it's complicated to understand um, because, you know, the, the, the simple approach to it, which the vast majority of, of high school seniors that I taught in government brought to it, was that, you know, you have a First Amendment right to say whatever you want to. And as it turns out, that's, you know, quite shy of what the situation is and you have to be you know uh you have to kind of work through those pieces so i guess i if, if anything the bottom line here is that you know more civics would be awesome in schools definitely well a related article that uh, we've got a whole bunch of them uh talking about ha- hacks and and the ways in which um you know folks can take advantage of or try to take advantage of us and trick us. This is an incredible article. Uh, this is from The Guardian on July 24th, 2018, and it's titled My Terrifying Deep Dive into One of Russia's Largest Hacking Forums. It's by an author named Dylan Curran. Um, and the subtitle is I spent three weeks studying free hacks, one of the dark web's biggest platforms for hackers from passports to credit cards. Nothing is safe. Oh my gosh. Um, he's using a translator, which is of course really interesting to, to translate because everything here is in Russian. And so you have to justify, you know, why you're going to be joining this Russian community, um, which is collaboratively sharing its resources so that you can do all kinds of things. Um, the, it says the categories of the website are, are varied and well divided. Hacker world news, humor, hacking and security, carding, which is stealing credit cards and trying to cash them out on the internet, botnet, uh, which is a security, a network of bots used to steal data and send spam, or it can um, perform denial of service attacks. Electronics and freaking. Freaking is trying to break someone's security network. Brutus, which is software used to crack passwords. DDoS, which is uh, attacks to overwhelm a server. Um, SEO optimization, which actually is a legitimate, uh, not a legal <laughs> act. Uh, programming, web development, malware and exploits, private software, the clothing market, people who use stolen credit cards to buy clothes, resell them, financial operations, documentation like passports, driver's licenses, and citizenship, and then blacklist, a community judicial system. But just incredible. Um, a number of years ago, I was introduced to the term script kitties, and I think that was probably on the Security Now <laughs> podcast, which I, uh, you know, I don't listen to as frequently, but it's one of the Twit Network podcasts. And a script kitty is somebody who can download a, you know, a script and be able to, you know, do some pretty powerful and usually malicious things. Doesn't necessarily understand all the code and write it themselves, but in this article, it's just incredible what you can download and and get. I mean, the the whole Apple Store, you know, that looks exactly like the Apple Store, and then you're able to uh, deploy this on your server and, um, you know, try to get people to click these links and, and put their Apple IDs in. I was in Target with my family a week or so ago and was, I guess, we, we had a teacher actually at school <laughs> who received a spear phishing email that purported to be from our, our headmaster. I don't know. If, have I told the story yet? On the I don't show? think you have. Yeah. And so, and it went to a number of people at school, but you know, it purported to be him said, Hey, I'm at this meeting. Um, can't get away. I need an iTunes card. And she actually bought one, copied it and sent it to him. And then after the first one thought, maybe I should check on this. And yeah, I got verification that no, this was not legitimate. And it was a, a fake, you know, Gmail account. It wasn't our, our school, you know, domain, et cetera, et cetera. And when I was in Target a couple of weeks ago, the guy, there was somebody there who was looking for iTunes cards. And the guy said, Oh man, you, I don't even know if we have any more. There's just been so much rampant, um, you know, issues with those being used and money being sent overseas and everything like that. So I was, it's a little weird to be shopping in Target and somebody's talking about cybercrime and the results right. of phishing and, and spear phishing. So anyway, the Guardian article is a, a bit of a longer read, but it's well worth it. And just, it opens your eyes a little bit wider to this world out there of incredible hostility online which a lot of people we just might dimly peer into, but we don't realize that, oh my gosh, there is, you know, the criminals are more organized and tech savvy than ever before. Um, and a lot of them speak Russian. So uh, Jason, are you, uh, you know, feel like your eyes are wide open to uh, the perils of the dark web and, and the dangers that it offers to, to us and our uh, parents and families? Um, well, I, I have to, to admit the reason why I was chuckling there when you talked about script kitties was that, uh, um, 
this was 10 years ago uh, when I was still in the classroom, maybe 12 years ago, but um, we had read an article when we were talking about international finance, international cybercrime, and it was talking about uh, script kiddies, and um, their, the, the article had uh, referred to a, a message board, and there, people are being critical of script kiddies if they're not real hackers, and so... Um, uh, that they call them script kitty noobs, and noob is a term for kind of a, a novice or an idiot on the internet. And so all that year, my my freshman would would scream skip or script kitty noob at kids instead of swearing. Uh, they would use that as as an ultimate insult. Um, I you know I I was I talk with my wife often about uh, uh, our frustration over the fact that our credit card gets canceled every three to four months and we get sent a new one and it's a huge pain in the butt because of course it's 2018 and you know almost everything we do is via uh, an electronic transaction now so when our credit card gets compromised um, it is a um, it's it's a real problem for for us and we have to you know then go change everything around some stuff ends up getting canceled because we didn't change the right accounts and yada 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 and we get frustrated by that because our credit card uh, a man or credit card issuer won't tell us who the compromised company is because I would stop doing business with them but the reality is is that even the the most secure systems on earth um, do get hacked pretty regularly and um, uh, that's part of the reason why, you know, elections and everything we try to put electronically, we have to be really thoughtful about whether we want to make that electronically or not. And we should probably move on to that article now about the notion of, of voting via mobile app. But I just would say that, you know, this this gives us good reason to be very thoughtful about how we do security in schools. Like, you know, let's be very honest here. The vast majority of school data is pretty boring and mundane, right? Like uh, for a middle-of-the-road student that, that has a three 3.2 grade point average, if their grades were hacked into, it's probably not a huge deal, right? But um, that's exactly the reason why that data is 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 so um, is so attractive, I think, because it is mundane, and yet when weaponized, and, and that's a term that, that we utilized a year ago when the uh, inter or the national hacking groups who had aimed at a number of school districts, including school districts in northwestern Montana, so much so they shut down those school districts for a couple of days while they sorted through the mess, like that means we need to be extra cautious about security. And so utilizing uh, things like two-factor authentication and hardware keys, which I believe is something we're also going to, it's in our links for this week, uh, those are critical. So, um, you know, there's a lot of people that, that have relatively little formal background that are serving in IT positions in your districts, um, oftentimes recruited from teacher ranks. Uh, the greatest thing about that crew is that they're, they're extremely research-oriented, right? They're not... Um, um, uh, they're, they're not ignorant of the processes. They just have to, they just don't have any formal background in it, so they have to learn. But those are the pieces we can all work with together and helping your fellow districts out. And if you happen to have some tech savvy here, pulling in neighboring school districts that, 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 that uh, may be under, also additionally understaffed to let them know there are critical things we need to do to protect student data. Even if, you know, a data breach isn't quite as terrible as a, you know, a national retailer losing credit card numbers, it doesn't mean we don't have an obligation to make sure that that data is as ironed as it needs to be. So, Wes, why don't you talk about that article regarding the the, the mobile voting? Okay. Uh, so, this is uh, I think it's in Florida. We have to do a, we're hard links. I don't know if we're gonna at some point have to get a new Google Doc. <laughs> right, right. It's getting um, pretty hardcore. Yeah. Um, but um, gosh, I've got twenty nine references to mobile. I don't have to find the article. Um, so it's a, a person. Well, it's a state that is uh, going to allow it's, this is very fascinating because they're talking about using the blockchain. So, <clears throat> um, gosh, and can you find the article? We might yeah, I'm looking to hear myself. So drop the article in. So they are going to allow absentee voting via a mobile device. So via a smartphone and the, you know, interesting. Okay. There it is. Experts criticize West Virginia's plan for smartphone voting. It's ours Technica, August the 8th. So West Virginia, not Florida. Um, so, you know, the idea sounds great. Let's let's let people, you know, vote on their mobile device. And they didn't they haven't explained all the technology that they're going to use. It sounds like they sort of just said we're using the blockchain. So it's not going to be, you know, something that can be exploited. Blockchain technology is something we've talked a little bit about. It's what underlies, um, you know, most cryptocurrencies, and it is uh, driven by math and algorithms. And uh, generally, if you use the blockchain, 
every transaction that happens is going to be publicly documented. So theoretically, if you were able to legitimately uh, verify the identity of individuals, and that's where biometrics and other you know kinds of things come into play, uh, or they should, then you would be able to tell that oh okay there's there's you know Jason Neifer cast a vote and you know he's not able to cast a second vote. Now one of the biggest issues is how do you know that's Jason Neifer who has cast that vote? Uh, so many elections in the United States as well as other places, although you know there's probably places that has a lot, lot higher voter turnout than we do. There's a lot of folks that don't turn out. So potentially if somebody was able to you know hack the system, um, it wouldn't be voter fraud in terms of you know casting five votes uh, as Jason Neifer. It could be, you know, casting five votes for the neighbors of Jason Neifer who didn't actually go to the polls or, you know, vote uh, absentee in advance. So um, this article says that there's a, you know, growing consensus that, quote, a voter verified paper trail is essential to making the voting process secure and fully auditable. And I just I think that's fascinating. Um, when we go to our local election spot here, uh, you know, a few blocks down the road at, at the little mini mall uh, on May Avenue, um, you know, we've we've got uh Scantrons and, and there's computers involved. I don't know. The operating systems are running. I know the last time I gave blood, I mean, they were running Windows XP on these tough books. And I'm like, uh, you guys got plans to upgrade that because like that's not supported by Microsoft anymore. And they're like, what? Um, you know, and, and so anyway, the technologies, uh, you know, in, in state government is, you know, notoriously can be challenged to, to, to stay up to, to speed with things. So anyway, I think that. It's interesting to hear about this. Um, you know, there's people that do think the blockchain is going to save our lives. It's, it's being applied, I guess, in, in healthcare and, uh, you know, other kinds of contexts to try to make things more transparent and actually accountable. Um, but, you know, as much as I love digital technology, I think I'm with those that say, hey, paper, you know, allows for better auditing and, until we can figure out how to get a handle on on these hacks, and this is a huge issue, right? This is a big reason why we need more and more folks in coding and applying their skills for coding. Uh, right. We're just going to continue to see the rise of transhumanism. I'll mention Amy Webb, the futurist, probably in the show because I've been reading her book. You know, and she talks about one of the articles tonight is about 2018 being the, the the sort of peak oil time for smartphones. It's the hiatus. In 10 years, she says smartphones are going to be gone. We're going to be using wearables. We're going to have you know things in our glasses, we're going to watches, you know, we don't want to be putting more and more technology, not only on our bodies, but in our bodies when it can be hacked. And right. so we're quite a ways away from, uh, I think, harnessing what will help us, I hope, uh, the power of, of AI and machine learning to do that. So yeah, I think we need paper ballots. So Jason, are, are you guys uh, casting paper ballots or, you know, has everything gone, gone digital there in the great state of Montana when it comes to democracy? We're doing paper ballots here, uh, but, you know, I think part of what, um, and I've talked about this with some uh, well, other social studies teachers. These are folks that are in the know in regards to government and history. You know, there, there are ways to utilize the convenience of electronic ballots while still maintaining an audible trail for later in case there are issues. And that's, as an example, you can use an electronic balloting system with a paper receipt where it prints you out two versions of that receipt. It prints you out a receipt and it prints a uh, receipt out uh, with your full uh, uh, cast of votes for an election judge, it's a more anonymous one, so they can go back and confirm with a paper ballot or with a paper count later. And, I, you know, I, I think there's, well, with the article we had two weeks ago that uh, uh, a number of states purchased voter machines that had uh, basically open back doors on them that allow you to get into them from the Internet, right, without much to do. And there was evidence that, that at least there were attempts uh, to hack uh, machines in, in a number of states. And, um, yeah, I just, you know, like I... You're not going to find two bigger like tech guys than than than, than me and Wes, right? And we we know that you know it's, it's a trust but verify situation here, right? Like you just have to to think about what's at, at stake with it. You know, you don't you don't need to do this with every document you put on your phone, but you know there are reasons to use analog editions of things when the stakes are so high. So you know, put in a, a mechanism for for verification. You know, I I don't think that's that controversial, and yet it seems. Seems like we we continually wring our hands. 
over and over again when we run into these situations. It's not a question of, of, of tech yes or tech no. It's, you know, can we find ways to make sure that we trust the outcome of things? Well, sure, we'll just have a paper backup. Even if that costs money to do that, elections are high enough stakes in, in, a, in a democracy, in the largest democracy, I'm sorry, not the largest, the greatest democracy on earth. Uh, you know, it seems like that that, that would be you know, pretty common sense for us. Absolutely. Um, well, I probably ought to just go ahead and mention the article titles for the um, Amy Webb um, references that I just made there. So um, her article in Business Insider on October 30th, 2017, smartphones will be gone in 10 years, uh, goes into that. She was actually a guest on a recent Twit podcast, which was wonderful. It was an absolutely great uh, wide ranging discussion about, you know, Amazon and the future of retail, but just, uh, she, she has an organization that, uh, what is it called? The, um, well, it's called FTI, which is what the Friday, the future, future Friday Institute. Um, and, uh, her book is called The Signals Are Talking. I started to, to read it last week when, when we were on vacation, um, on Kindle. Um, her other articles actually just off of her medium channel. 235 emerging trends for 2018. Uh, that was from back on, in March of, of 20, of the 2018, March 12th, 2018. Um, you know, and we see all these kind of things with, uh, we, the Horizon Report, I think still comes out and that's a, you know, it has a K-12 version and a higher ed version trying to identify trends and, as a futurist, her big thing is, you know, what's what's a flash in the pan and then what are dots that you can connect in terms of what is Google with Alphabet and with its different projects, you know, trying to do. And then, you know, how do you position yourself as an organization and or an individual if you can kind of see these trends and see where things are going? So I had not heard of her before and I'm just loving uh, her book. And, um, yeah, it'll probably be a, a geek of the week that, that I will share a little bit later. Have you heard of her before? Or I have not. That's new one? to me. Yeah. Uh, would it be okay if we talk about guns and 3D printing? Uh, sure. Actually, that's an enormously interesting topic. Let's go. Okay. So I think we had this uh, two weeks ago, the last show that we talked about. Um, this is an Ars Technica article from August 5th, 2018. Uh, 3D printed and CNC milled guns. Nine questions you were too afraid to ask. So the quick summary is we've had some pretty important things happen. Um, it was probably like five years ago. Uh, where this guy that runs Defense Distributed, Cody Wilson, um, put out the instructions for how you can 3D print an actual gun called the Liberator. Um, and one of the things that's really uh, controversial about this is that these guns are potentially not traceable, and they also can get through, I think, x-ray machines, et cetera. And, you know, there's people in our society who are banned from being able to purchase handguns. And so, you know, this thought that you're going to be able to have anybody in the world, if they, you know, have the right equipment, be able to produce a, a functional gun. Um, and we're also talking about AR-15s, which are, you know, civilian versions right. of the M16. And so his company actually makes its its money. I think they say, he's, they estimate he's made about $9 million selling these milling machines, which allow you to create an AR-15, which is uh, an M16. And in this article, and then I think some other ones, one of the things that's so interesting about this is it's both a First Amendment and a Second Amendment issue. So the United States federal government originally filed uh, against him saying, you know, this was just like you were exporting weapons uh, to or from Mexico or from you know some other country. But they ended up settling, and part of this is saying that code is speech. So that's where it's a First Amendment thing because he's not actually, you know, exporting guns. It's the instructions for how you can fabricate one. And so if code is speech, as EFF and other groups, you know, promote, <clears throat> we may be in an era where this is going to be reality. Now, states, uh, attorneys general, I think for something like 19 states, um, have filed to try to stop this and to say it's a constitutional issue and the state's rights issue. And so, you know, the federal government can't just do this. States have the right to regulate commerce, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so anyway, w once he put these things out, of course, mirrored sites were created and, and these things are all over. But right. there was another article I read that said he's really working hard to become a library because if 
if he can become a federally recognized library, he will gain access to the technical specifications of every weapon in the arsenal of the U.S. Army. And so then they will reverse engineer that and be able to put all of those weapons or a large number of those weapons out in the in in the ether uh, for people to be able to download as well. So he is an anarchist and just rabid, you know, Second Amendment. Uh, everybody, you know, should have access to guns. There should be no limitations. So, uh, wow, Jason, your thoughts on, you know, 3D printing guns. Do you think the state's attorney general uh, asking you to put on your, your lawyer hat, uh, which I know you don't officially have, uh, do they <laughs> do they have a chance to prevail here or are we doomed to kind of live in this world where we're going to be able to have our own CNC milling machines and make an, make an M16 whenever we want? It's the inevitable byproduct of freeing up the manufacturing via 3D printing, right? Like that's that's the core problem here, right? Like I I there, I have no doubt that there's a legitimate uh, uh there's a legitimate debate, a legitimate reason to limit this because we I happen to be a well I'm I'm a I'm a I'm a Western leaning left guy, right? So I I mean I I. I don't think that the, the, or I, I personally do think that, see, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to myself in a circles, right? And I, like, I, the whole time I'm like, this is a tech podcast, Jason, be quiet. But, um, I live in Montana, right? There are guns in Montana. I've shot guns. I hunt once in a while, right? Like, it's something that is part of the, the culture here in Montana. Um, but as a hunter, um, and I can legitimately say that as a hunter, um, I do not believe that there's an unlimited Second Amendment right, that it's more of a collective right than is an individual right and da 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 but ignoring my personal opinion which does not matter in this context um that 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 it, it ignores the fact that that's the power of these technologies right i'm not saying it's a good thing i'm just saying that that they are extremely powerful in disrupting uh, manufacturing and dis in, in uh, disrupting supply chains and disrupting ownership and disrupting all the components that you know really government regulation has in the past been able to enforce because it was you, you unless you were a, a gunsmith you're not making a gun in your backyard you're not printing one or you're not making one in your basement but if you can download plans from the internet to make and it doesn't really matter what the X is right there's plenty of things that are regulated uh, that beyond gun that that could theoretically be 3D printed in in uh, 2018, um, but that those are the conversations we need to be having about this, right? And I think it's enormously interesting. I, I love the way you put that, Wes. That it, it's a first and a second amendment issue because there are very few things that that cross over those two boundaries at the same time, right? But that's one of them. I'm reminded of the situation. Is it 15, 20 years ago now, where the DVD encryption code um, was uh, cracked and uh, released, and uh, the DVD manufacturer sued the the snot out of the folks that did that. And one of the ways they made a First Amendment argue, argument out of that was to print it on a T-shirt. And they said, "This is speech. You can't regulate speech, right? I'm sorry we cracked this code, but you know, here's all these activists. They're showing up at the Supreme Court with this T-shirt on." And, you know, like it's, it's the same thing right now. That's 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 low stakes. That's commercial. Right. It's not a it's not a life and death situation. But as it turns out, it's the same issue. Right. Like it, at what point does speech, you know, it, it certainly isn't what the, the founders envisioned when when they were looking to protect free speech, because speech was a political act. It was political theater. It was political uh, persuasion. It was not, you know, um, the uh, it was not a situation where the the physicality of the world was impacted by the speech. And so it's mind blowing uh, the implications of this. It's important though, too, not to just fall into the trap of this guy is falling. This guy is falling. You know, right. everyone's going to go print one of these tomorrow because exactly. this article gets into the details about how this is difficult. It's challenging. Um, you do have to have a CNC mill. You don't just, you know, use your, uh, your maker bot, your, your typical yeah, ma yeah. maker bot with PLA and your, you know, plastic, <laughs> um, you know, right. it's, it, that's, that's not how you're you're making an AR-15. Um, and also, the quantity and the price of guns that are available on the market today, I mean, it is far cheaper and, and much easier to go out and just purchase uh, one of these guns than it is to manufacture it. But, 
the thing is, of course, it's it's early days. And so these kinds of technologies will continue to mature and the kinds of home manufacturing capabilities and capacities that we're going to have are just going to continue to increase. So I really just think it's a huge sign of the times. Um, but it also is important for us not to, you know, focus so much on this one example and then, you know, grumble and say, and those 3D printing and those kids, and it's just, you know, the world is just going down the toilet. Uh, there's phenomenal things that are being created and done imaginatively uh, with these kinds of technologies. But, you know, it's an example where powerful technologies are going to be able to be used for, you know, unfortunately, really uh, negative and destructive uh you know, context and as well as, as well as the positive. So I, I think uh, we're probably, I would, I would say that they're not going to be successful as far as challenging this. Um, and the cat's already out of the bag. Like I said, there's all kinds of mirrored sites. And if you want to go find these things, um, you know, it's, we live in a seek and find world, right. Uh, for, for good or for, for evil. And uh, for folks that want to go do this, it, it's interesting because this does amplify the availability of it. Right. So isn't that a crazy thing that you read an article that says, Oh, you can 3d print this. And then someone with an internet connection and a computer, you know, whether they have to get on the dark web via Tor or they just, you know, use Chrome or Firefox. Fox, you know, they're able to, to be able to get access to that stuff. So pretty crazy. Where else do you want to go tonight, sir? Oh, oh, there we go. Um, so uh, I want to make one other note related to that. Uh, once something's on the internet, it's pretty rare for it to get off the internet, right? Which is part of the reason why this debate is, is a little silly because I'm sure right now you could go to one of the many BitTorrent sites that exist on Earth and look for 3D gun code and find it. So, yeah, that's part well, of the that. Route. That article has links to some of the mirrored sites, yeah. so you can there look you from why from from you know the Guardian or whatever. Yep, done and done. Yeah. Um, a couple of quick hits here. Um, uh, this one it kind of sort of impacts me. A uh, Logitech. Uh, Bot Blue, uh, which is the microphone manufacturer that actually manufactured this fabulous microphone that's part of both my home and uh, work podcasting set. Uh, this is the Blue Yeti mic, which is a great name for a microphone, big microphone. Um, the only reason why I mention that is because those have kind of always been the high-end consumer microphones, and I don't know if it's good news or bad news uh, that Logitech purchased them. I've actually been very impressed with the general peripherals from Logitech over the last two or three years. The only thing I would criticize, which is a huge rabbit hole that I will not jump down is that I wish their 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 uh, mice work better with a Chromebook. But other than that, um, that's an interesting piece, and I hope that means the price is going to go down uh, of these fabulous devices. Um, and then one other quick hit, the BBC reported that this is a British statistic, but I'm sure that's got to be mirrored elsewhere, that for the first time, uh, voice calls have dropped in the number of minutes per month. And I'm on, there's two things that I think find interesting there. The first one is that, um, that voice calls hadn't dropped before this point, right? Like, I hate talking on the phone. Now, my job necessitates it. I have what's called the three email rule. If I ever have to reply three times to an email, it's time for me to pick up the phone and do this, even though I dislike talking on the, the phone very strongly. But the bottom line is that um, uh, uh, we don't, uh, or that, that, that that's a trend of the times, right? And, and certainly uh, an interesting piece there. And then um, one other uh, thing that we could probably talk about maybe down the road as well, and I only mention this because it, it, I'm sure it applies to a number of apps. Uh, there's a great article from PC Magazine on July 31st that uh, free VPN sites, so um, those are, I'm sorry, free, free VPN apps in particular, those are uh, virtual private networks are the ability to kind of tunnel through the Internet privately so that, like, if you're at Starbucks, for example, that someone couldn't sniff out your traffic. Um, and it's becoming less likely to do that in the era where almost every website is secure. But still, the idea is, is that safer to use a VPN. Well, there are dozens, maybe hundreds of VPN apps. Uh, students use them all the time to try to tunnel through um, uh, 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 district internet that has a significant firewall or, or content filter on it. Um, but a lot of those apps that claim to be free VPN may provide you VPN services, but they're selling your data to both advertisers and some some cases, third parties there are building profiles on folks, and so free is hard in 2018 for a variety of reasons. But one of the reasons why that might be the case is because the the app is free because it's selling your data to someone else. If you're not paying for it, you very well may be the product. Absolutely true. 
Um, and also a couple quick hits for me. Uh, this is for from Brian Krebs. Brian Krebs is one of the foremost security researchers. Um, absolutely recommend uh, checking out his book, Spam Nation. Read that a year or so ago. In fact, I think I listened to it on Audible. And you just, you know, the hostility of the Russian hacking world is nothing new. And, you know, Brian Krebs has been reporting on it for quite a while. So two recent articles. The first is from July 23rd on his blog, which is called Krebs on Security. It says, Google security keys neutralize employee phishing. So Google, and I'll read the first paragraph. Google has not had any of its 85,000 plus employees successfully phished on their work-related accounts since early 2017 when it began requiring all employees to use physical security keys in place of passwords and one-time codes, the company told Krebs on security. So FIDO um, is a is a technology um, that, you know, it's a FIDO alliance, I guess. It's a standards-based um, um, technology, YubiKey uh is, is made by Yubico. It's about 20 bucks. So these are physical keys that you're using. And, you know, we made the transition last year as a school to two-step authentication. Most of our teachers are using uh, SMS technology to get that security code. It's still a step in the right direction, but I find this, you know, pretty significant that, you know, relying on text messaging um, as well as app-based um, code generators um, is not nearly as good as having a physical device. And so related to that is his article from August 1st, Reddit breach highlights limits of SMS-based authentication. And there was a hack of the website Reddit, uh, a data breach, and it had to do with some of its authorized account holders uh, somehow, even though they had two-step verification turned on, um, being being phished and, and being hacked. And so they didn't report how the SMS codes for the two-factor were stolen, um, but they talk about, you know, two common scenarios. One's called a SIM swap, where the um, attacker pretends to be the user and calls the, uh, you know, T-Mobile, AT&T, uh, Verizon, whatever, and pretends to have a new phone with a different SIM card that switches over. And then the other one um, is a, a, a number port. It's called a port out scam. And so again, they, they call the provider and pretend, hey, you know, I've switched to a different company. Can you go ahead and port my number? And in, in either case, then they end up in control of that cellular number. And then they can, you know, when the codes are generated, then, then they can hack. And so that is actually an example of spear phishing. Um, we're talking phishing with a pH. And so general phishing is when, you know, messages are sent out saying, hey, you know, log in here to verify you've got a package at school and, and whatever. And it's really going to one of these fake sites that is going to, you know, copy and suck up your information versus giving you actual access to Google or whatever you think you're logging into. Spear phishing right. is what I described, like where somebody's pretending to be a specific individual and then they're, you know, being able to, um, you know, have, have a targeted attack and then get, get control of that person's credentials, et cetera. So pretty interesting. Uh, and I guess just the good news is we've got researchers like Brian Krebs uh, continuing to, to highlight this stuff. So I don't think that means we shouldn't be doing two-step security, but if we want to be more secure, um, you know, rather than using uh, SMS or, or even an app-based authenticator, I've, I've been using Authy, A-U-T-H-Y for a while and it's cloud-based and I really, really like it. Um, you know, the best thing would be to have a physical key. So. Yep. And I just would note that there is an, I, I think that article's in this week, uh, Google had announced that uh, they hadn't been hacked in like not a single Google employee had been hacked in 18 months, which is you know, even for a tech savvy crew is pretty impressive with the numbers of Google employees. And it was a physical key that made the difference for them. Yeah, and absolutely. Um, I'm a little leery of that myself, not because it's not secure, but because if I lose that, I... It's not good, right? So I'm all in on two-factor, um, and usually I use an app over a text message as well for for the reasons you stated, Wes. But um, yeah, um, it, you know, and I feel a lot better about it. Like not all my passwords are perfect; they're pretty good, and I I'm getting to the point where they're unique. By the way, I was uh, caught up in the uh, I don't know if you read this last week, but uh, um, it's not Dig; it's uh, Reddit. Uh, Reddit had passwords um, that from like 2007 that were hacked, and I was contacted and said, you know, your password from 2007 was 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 hacked. And it, you know, I don't really remember what my password for Reddit was in 2007, but I'm guessing it was one of maybe six or seven of them that I use pretty regularly. Um, and so I that's I I've been continuing to go through and try to create a unique password for every site. And I use a password manager. 
manager, LastPass is my, my password manager and two-factor authentication and you know, everything that matters and yada, yada, yada. But, um, you know, it, you have to be a little obsessive about it, but I do think it's worth it in the same way that, you know, it's, it's probably a bigger risk than if you leave your door unlocked at home. Right. So if you're obsessive about that, then you should be obsessive about passwords and keep your data secure. I just went to the website. I'll put it in the in the show notes. Have I been pawned, um, which is a way that you can put in your email address and, yep. and just check to see if your email address and it'll tell you if your password as well or whatever was been has been hacked. And so um, I, I put in, you know, I knew that my own personal uh, Gmail account had been involved in multiple ones, but my work one had not. And now, yes, it's been involved in two, including one that was in June 2018. The marketing firm Exactus leaked 340 million records of personal data. So compromised data included credit card status, information, dates of birth, education level, email address, ethnicity, family structure. That doesn't say password, but oh gosh, there is just so much information. I think that'll, that's, that, that's a grand challenge without actually entering the witness protection program of a nation state. You know, how <laughs> could you start over with your digital identity? You know, is it possible yep. to do? Well, I'm looking. Um, I, I'm going to check my 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 uh, work one in a second because it's 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 eight years old now. But um, I just checked my personal one. Um, Adobe B2B USA, which is a spam house. Bitly, Boxy, uh, Coupon Mom. I can't imagine why I would be I I would have logged a Coupon Mom. Apparently, I did. Uh, Discus, Dropbox, Edmodo, Elance, uh, Exploit.in, uh, Gawker. Kickstarter, LinkedIn, these are all the places my thing has been hacked. Patreon, uh, Quinn Street, which I've never heard of. Ticketfly, which I have, um, including, it looks like my personal address, my website activity, uh, passwords, email address, email address, passwords, 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 geographical location. Yeah, you gotta, you, you gotta, you gotta be careful out there, kids. Well, Peggy has said it's uh, unfortunate we miss a week because there's just too much tech news in a regular week, much less when we skip a week. So we did start just a little bit late, but I suppose we probably better better wrap up. So you want to want me to geek of the week it, or would you like to take the? Um, let, let me do it now, and then you can uh, send us out for the week. So um, I am in the market for a handful of Chromebooks for a special application for my work, and I want to share along a um, a. Uh, Chromebook provider that, that deals with government and education. I've been really impressed with them so far. We're, we haven't approached them about our small Chromebook project, but um, Promivo is a, they call themselves a premier Google um, uh, uh, seller, Google uh, consulting group. But what I love about them is they have a really great social media presence and their videos are outstanding. Uh, they do uh, reviews of all Chromebooks. And in fact, um, I keep an eye on their YouTube channel because that's how I learn about a lot of new Chromebooks uh, that are out there. And they do speed testing on it, durability testing is it's pretty great stuff but they are a premier chromebook provider you can buy from them uh you know white glove service or google apps for education i'm sorry google suite for education licenses for individual devices and so if you're looking for a premier group that's a great place to go and there are lots of wonderful places that do this service but i've been impressed with them particularly because of their social media presence Awesome. And I just have one geek of the week. Uh, this is a pretty amazing one. It's called Explorables Snippets of Complexity. Um, and it's uh, put the Twitter ID. Uh, Dirk Brockman is the author of it. And so the, the blog is complexity dash or hyphen explorables dot org. Uh, slash explorables. And so it's a collection of interactive explorable explanations of complex systems in biology, physics, mathematics, social sciences, uh, epidemiology, ecology and other fields. Uh, so, I mean, the one that I saw was this most recent one from August 6th. It's called, I heard you four models explain how, um, immunizations affect you. And so you can press play and then adjust the transmit transmissibility and the vaccine uptake in a population. And you can look at, uh, different kinds of models. <laughs> it's just fascinating. Um, and I'm really drawn to, um, you know, ways in which technology can make the, the invisible visible. And it can allow for, you know, complexity to be better uh, represented and understood and things like this that essentially are like digital manipulatives so that you actually have the ability to modify variables and then see what effect that has on the interaction that's, that's taking place. Incredible. So check it out. Explorables. 
So I am Wes Fryer. You can find me at W Fryer on the Twitters. Uh, blog is speedofcreativity.org. I've taken the last of the summer vacations and fully back into the swing of things. We have teachers coming back next week for a full week of meetings and then school will, I think, be starting on the 22nd. So I will uh, probably be working a little more than usual uh, as we, you know, gear up for the week at school. So Jason, are you, are you still the, the tech savvy teacher in residence for NCCE? As a matter of fact, <laughs> I think te technically the tech savvy administrator in residence oh, now. That's right. That's right. And we, we have a tech savvy teacher and tech savvy librarian as well. But, um, that, that, that is true. Um, I offer professional development through the Northwest Council for Computer Education where I am the tech savvy administrator in residence and I blog there at blog.ncce.org. And in fact, they're about ready to release a huge trove of trains in upcoming uh, weeks and months. So follow NCC on Twitter, Facebook, or go to the NCC uh, website, ncc.org slash professional-learning. And I'm also the assistant director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school um, that uh, provides services to students across the state of Montana through their local public school. I'm on the Twitters as well, at Tech Teach, where I post, you know, it's 5, 10, 15 articles a week uh, uh, that are, 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 are crossing my uh, cell phone or tablet, and I'd like to share that uh, to help kind of add to the conversation. Um, this whole action here, though, is not any of those things. This is the EdTech Situation Room. We are a weekly podcast that talks about uh, tech news through an educational lens. We are here um, almost every Wednesday uh, at 7, no, 8 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Central, and I believe that we had decided that was 3 a.m. UTC or something along those lines. Um, if you can't join us live, and you know, we, we hope you try sometime, we'd love to have an audience. Thank you again to Peggy. Um, then you can always download this at our website, edtechsr.com, or you can see uh, releases on Twitter, um, edtechsr is our Twitter handle, or you can find us wherever finer podcasts are aggregated, which includes Stitcher Radio, um, Pocket Cast is my preferred provider, we're there, the Apple uh, iTunes uh, podcast directory uh, contains us, it was, and we're also on Google Play and Spotify, so feel free to find us in any of those locations, or download the podcast directly from the website. So we hope to see you on a future episode, and and uh, stay safe, stay savvy, and have a great day. Adios.